Hey listeners, we're back with part two of the scotch episode, the tasting. In this episode, we go even deeper into whiskey while tasting a variety of scotches of varying levels of alcohol content, peat, and flavor. Do you need to listen to part one before listening to this? I mean, no. But we do give you a good lay of the land of Scotland and whiskey. We posted a full list of the whiskey we drank in this episode on our website, roundtripbrewing.com slash podcast, if you're feeling ambitious and want to drink along. In this episode, we're joined once again by our friend Dave Kuhn, a graphic designer and scotch enthusiast, who graciously shared some of his whiskey collection with us. I am Billy Rudolph, your host, and I once rubbed elbows with Princess Beatrice at a bar. Craig Mykoski, CEO and head brewer at Round Trip, is also in this episode. He couldn't join me for this introduction because he's still recovering from this episode. We wish him a full and speedy recovery. This is your captain welcoming you aboard our flight today. The crew will start beverage service shortly. I've set up a little bit of a tasting mat and, um, you know, there are a bunch of regions of Scotland. Um, and if I miss one, I apologize, but there's Highland, Lowland, Island, Hamilton, Speyside, and Isla. And I think that's it. Uh, so I've picked out a Highland whiskey and a space and a couple of Speysides and then three Islas that are all from Brooklady. Um, just to kind of compare, contrast. And, you know, I was going to talk about a little bit about how caskets expressions um, affect the overall um, flavor profile of a whiskey. Um, you know, the Balvenny claims to have invented cask finishing, which is where they take whiskey that typically is um, aged. Well, let's, let's start with what the definition of Scotch whiskey is. So Scotch whiskey is distilled from barley uh, and water and yeast for the fermentation. And by definition, it has to be aged three years in an oak cask. And so that oak can be a number of things. It can be an old European oak. It can be a French wine cask. They use a lot of old bourbon barrels. Yeah, right there, right? Jim Beam yeah. is one of the biggest yeah. producers of uh, bourbon barrels. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's really, uh, you know, there's these tales of how the Scottish are, you know, practical and resilient. And so they don't like to waste things. And so it's kind of been this really great marriage between the United States bourbon industry and the Scotch whiskey industry. And so the United really, States is very wasteful. It says it, for bourbon, you can only use the cask once. Yeah. And so <laughs> and that's then, a great thing for Scotland because then it just goes to Scotland. <laughs> Same thing with breweries, you know, taking all these old bourbon barrels and. Yeah. And, and there's actually a lot of, and I, I know a little bit about the, about the Scotch industry taking barrels because that is one of the competitors. The breweries in the U.S. are becoming kind of competitors for these old barrels for, for yeah. Scott. Yeah, and there's a lot of barrels. Sure it's easier for them to, to ship them domestically. Right, for, yeah, you know. that's true. I mean, you know, you, I guess you just have to realize that, you know, there are certain companies like Diageo or Remy Contro who, to some extent, kind of own all the distilleries with the exception of a few and their, their buying power, I'm sure is really driving that for the Scottish was, uh, the Scotch whiskey industry. But yeah, if you want to, I mean, I've set up a tasting mat. Let's dive right in. None of this is finish the glass, you know, that way you can go back and compare and contrast. So, uh, if you look at the bottom left of your tasting mat, this is a Highland whiskey. So this is from the Highland region, Northern Highlands. Um, the, 
Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, we'll well, I was going to say, as, as we're doing this, could you uh, explain how someone should drink and enjoy uh, a glass of scotch, you know, putting your nose in there, and then what kind of tastes they're going to have? Well, um, really, uh, you should drink whiskey however you like to drink whiskey. But I would suggest pouring whiskey into a glass. You know, when you first pour it, just give it a good nose. And you don't have to really dive in with your nose. You can just hold it like an inch under your nose and just sort of breathe in. I've heard another thing where you keep your mouth open while you breathe yeah. in. Yeah. And it kind of, you kind of get a little bit more of a flavor thing going on. You want to taste it. And then, you know, if you feel like it, add a few drops of water, like maybe half a teaspoon of water to it and just see how it opens up. Because what happens is the alcohol in the whiskey will hide a little bit of the flavor profile. And a lot of these master blenders and master distillers, when they're sampling casks, they do half and half water just because it lowers the alcohol level. I mean, and usually whiskey in a cask goes into a cask. Sometimes it's 70%, sometimes it's 60%. They do half and half and they'll shake up their glass and that way they really can detect all these different flavors. Um, so they actually shake the glass instead of like a swirl. And then well, I there's, a, there's a certain thing where when you shake it, and I don't know exactly what it is, but you can see how the, the liquid reacts to the water hmm. and the, the kinds of bubbles that form will tell you a little bit about the strength. There's a thing. Um, I'm going to do that in my next beer taste when I'm judging. Just start shaking the glass and see see who looks at me. I might get kicked yeah. off the panel at that point. Maybe so. Shake <laughs> the keg and the cans that it came in, the bottles, just, just pour yeah. in. And I'll, tell, I'll tell the stewards that are, that are doing me the beer. If you could shake my beer before yeah. you bring it to me, I'd really appreciate it. Well, there's a certain there's a certain technique too where you create beads in the whiskey, and that's where if uh, I think it's fifty percent alcohol, but if there if the whiskey is stronger than fifty percent, and you shake the bottle, bubbles should form around the edges of the whiskey, and if they don't, then that means that the whiskey is weaker than fifty percent ABV. Um, so this is a Glen Ord twelve year old. Um, it's an older bottling, which you can't get anymore. Make sure you talk. Um, oh yeah, it's an older body bottle of Glen Ord. Uh, that I don't think they produce anymore. It's kind of this squatty square bottle with like a, a, a big wooden knob for a top. Uh, but if you look it up, it's 43% alcohol. And it's, it's, um, it's got this kind of juicy fruit gum thing going on. If you've ever had juicy fruit gum, you'll know what I talk about. It's kind of this like banana fruitiness. But the thing about Highland whiskeys, let me just taste this so I'm getting it right. They're a little bit spicy compared to like Speyside. So you'll get some spice notes and they're creamier in some instances and they're very cereal forward, which means you get that kind of heavy grain influence. And it's a little bit sort of more like rye whiskey compared to bourbon in a sense. I mean, not as drastic as that, but you get some kind of spicier notes. And we're going to go, we're going to bounce around just a little bit in ABV, but eventually we'll get to one that's about 60%, save that for the end. And that's another thing too, if you're going to do a tasting, you want to save the cash strength whiskeys for later on, because there is a, a bit of palate fatigue that yeah, can right. happen where Same. you just yeah. can't Similar taste to the beer. I mean, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm doing beer tastings, I always start with the lighter ones yeah. because... A double IPA is going to wreck me. Mm -hmm. Craig, what's your impression of this? Um, my impression 
you know, and this is one thing I wanted to talk about on, on the front end of this tasting. I know a lot about beer, right? I like whiskey. I like scotch. I know it tastes good and what doesn't taste good, but I don't know it like I know beer. So it's interesting to have somebody at the table is like, okay, I can, I can listen to a little bit and, and kind of bring in, I guess my background helps me in some aspects, but at the same time, it's, this is just interesting because this isn't where my job is. Right. So to me, um, I, I definitely get some interesting, uh, wooden notes that I would not get in like, um, I guess a, a bourbon barrel aged beer because the bourbon barrel aged beer is using probably only American oak. I don't know exactly what oak they use on this. And also it's, it's, uh, it, it just has a different, more of a depth profile than an oak aged beer where as the oak aged beer is, it's going to usually be the same barrel throughout mm -hmm. and it's going to be one singular run of a beer where this is probably spaced out into different casks and probably different years to create this. Yeah. That's my guess because it, I'm not tasting like one certain type of oak. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, the, uh, I think it's called vanillin, which is like basically where vanilla, vanilla yeah, that's yeah. what like the oak taste that makes bourbon sweet. Um, I would imagine, and I don't know, I'm not an expert on, on this whiskey and their distillery exactly, but I just, I like it. There's a, a company called Compass Box that makes really amazing blended scotch whiskeys and they use Glen Ord a lot in their profiles or their, their recipes. Um, but I would imagine it's some combination of, of, uh, bourbon oak and European oak. Mm. Um, you know, it might have some sherry influence. Sherry is a big, uh, cask uh, origin for wood for the whiskey industry. So, you know, when you get something like a Balvenie 12 year old double cask, the double cask or double oak, whichever they call it, those two things mean bourbon and sherry. And they, they typically blend those together and just adds a little bit of the sweetness to the whiskey itself. What do you think about it, Bill? I'm going to give you a don't like it, like it. Uh, I, I think it's great. I actually uh, find it really smooth and approachable. You you might disagree with me. I think that if, if I were to introduce someone to scotch, this might be a good one to say, start with this. Yeah, no. And it's, you know, it's 43%, which is kind of the, you know, so much nowadays is made about cast strength whiskey. And it's really just part of an overall distillery profile you want to have a catalog of things that are just you know standard strength which 43 percent would be considered standard strength um the other rule about scotch whiskey is it has to be 40 percent alcohol or higher um if it drops below 40 percent abv it's considered liqueur at that point but you know introducing someone to scotch you don't want to overwhelm them you don't want to like turn them off and blow their head off with some 60 percent abv liquid i hate when I'll, I'll be honest i hate when people call it bourbon or scotch juice I think oh that's God. Well, there's a lot of bad beer terms too, i mean there's yeah. just some pet peeves i have just but, like yeah. you know a lot of, i get it's usually sales guys well it's like a lot of kentucky distillers in the bourbon sector sector whatever corridor they'll just be like yeah as long as it's good juice and i'm just like yeah. oh my god it just sounds so I get, I get, um, liquid a lot when people are talking about beer. Yeah. That's one I don't want to hit people for like it's, it's liquid, but you know, 
Yeah, Scientifically, it's yeah. liquid. It's yeah, not yeah. solid. Well, you know, I was watching this one program that I'm really fond of, um, and they went and visited like a little small batch brewer. This woman, there's a show called Oz and James. It's like Oz Clark and James May. And TV's Oz Clark and TV's James Oz May. Clark, yes. yeah. James May of top of your fame. But they made three seasons of the show, and the first two are about wine, and the third one is called um, Oz and James Drink to Britain, and they they go in search of the, the, quote, drink of Great Britain, and they go visit this little brewery that's run out of this woman's house, and she... When they they talked about she talked about the brewing process and adding water to the vat, and she called the water liquor, and I guess yeah. as some brewers. Well, that's that. yeah. I mean, in brewing, we have our a hot liquor tank yeah. and a cold liquor tank. Okay. So yeah, that's what that's I just thought that was fascinating because yeah. they were both confused about that. Like, no, that's water. And she's like, yeah, right. liquor. And I actually that, that's interesting because I've you know just being in the beer industry and yeah. and doing it, I've always called a liquor tank and. Just never questioned it or even yeah. thought about it, to be honest. Just, right. That's the term. I guess just words have a certain connotation, you know, in yeah. the culture in which yeah. you've grown up. Mm-hmm. I think we need to go to whiskey, well, too. Yeah, let's... I'm, I'm excited. So, yeah. So, the next one? So, the progression here is really, um, you know, in a, in a limited amount of um, tolerance and drinking capacity here on a lovely Sunday afternoon in Atlanta. With a limited range of whiskeys, I was really trying to talk about regionality, the typical kind of characteristics of regions, but also um, cask influence on the whiskey. So if you take whiskey one, which is a Northern Highland Glen Ord, and then try it compared to a Balvenie 12 year single barrel, you can kind of see the two distinctions of the regions themselves. It's just right next to the other one. That's interesting. So uh, where I said, like, originally this this uh, Highland malt is very spicy, cereal forward. This Balvenie single barrel, which being a single barrel, this is basically the quintessential pra- flavor profile of the Balvenie. One thing to note here, this is 47%, so it's a little bit higher in alcohol. And when you're saying space side, uh, where is that? Geographically... Speyside region whiskey is a Highland whiskey, but the distinction is the area around where all these rivers meet, and most notably the Spey River, they've dubbed Speyside. And so the Balvenie is one of the most famous. The Macallan is one of the most famous. Um, uh, Abelour, Glenfiddich, um, those are all very well-known Speyside whiskeys. And the characteristics of Speyside is, you know, usually it's a little bit more of that vanillin. I mean, I say that on the map too. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit more of that, like, oak influence forward, at least with a single barrel like this. Mm. And they do plenty of cask finishes, which that just means they transfer the whiskey from one cask into another for a certain amount of time. Well, one thing that and I'll just kind of jump in here with what I'm tasting flavor profile-wise is um, the first one seemed to have a lot more of a spice heat to it, mm-hmm. lingering alcoholic heat. This one, it uh, has less of a heat up front, but actually the heat comes a little bit later on. Yeah, um, so that that's it's it's interesting how different these are. Mm-hmm. This is yeah, and you get more of that kind of um, honeyed vanilla toffee flavor on the end of the Balvenie. And so 
I that mean, it smells amazing. Yeah, it's, it's great. Awesome. I mean, it's one of the best. Honestly, the Balvenie single barrel 12 year, I think is probably my favorite porch, hot outside weather kind of drinking whiskeys, just in terms of like, it tastes very summery. It's refreshing. It's not overbearing with any kind of, and these are both unpeated, by the way. That's another thing we can talk about, but. But, you know, it just has a very kind of refreshing vibe going on. It's very, uh, very light and springy, I guess. There's a lot of like kind of hay, you know, notes of hay. I mean, and there's crazy tasting notes. I mean, there's just and that's the thing. I mean, people taste in different ways. What I taste out of the whiskey, you're not going to taste probably. It could be tasting like a freshly opened can of tennis balls. There you go. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the movie, the uh, the wine the wine taster movie, the Psalm. Oh, Psalm. I've never seen Psalm. Psalm, the guy, the guy comes out, you know, he's taking the test and he's smelling the wine. He's like, fresh cut garden hose. Um, I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. What the yeah. heck? Yeah. Yeah, I've always, wanted to, I've always wanted to really uh, expand my palate, too, because there's, you know, there's a list of groceries you can just go buy. Mm-hmm. And it's just you're going to have to have the right whiskeys to pair with them. But you can really kind of train your your palate to pick out things like anise, you know, like sure. the licorice. Yeah. Flavor. Yeah. yeah, let's let's move on to something at the interest of time. Yeah. Uh, to uh, the next one. So Balvenie 12 year. And then next to that is the Balvenie 14 year old rum cask finish, which is the they call it Caribbean cask. And so this uh, spends an additional few months in a rum cask. You can definitely tell the difference in color. Yeah, the color is different. And that's another thing you want to consider when you're when you're tasting whiskey. You hold it up. Um, you want to think about the nose. Because really, most of the flavor of a whiskey goes through your olfactory sense. You know, you want to look at the legs. You can kind of tell the legs on the glass, the way the whiskey runs down the glass. Um, the slower... The tears, as they call them, goes the uh, the heavier the alcohol, and a lot of times the older the whiskey too. So if you think about Balvenie single barrel twelve year, this is this is spent its entire life in a bourbon barrel. It's very straight ahead, straightforward bourbon influence, and then when you get to this cask finish of the rum, I get a lot more deep wood, major deep wood flavor. Yeah, yeah and it's sweeter. You know, from that influence. When I was smelling it, I got a lot more like uh, brown sugar. Mm-hmm. And there's even like some mango and pineapple you can pull out of there if you really try. As long as you say it with confidence, it's yeah. there. Well, you know, there's a there's a single uh, Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, and they they're really famous because where they bottle whiskey, they always give each bottling a different name. They've even come up with some crazy tasting notes, like you know, one was like used condom. Yeah, that's, I mean, like, I, I weird. Can't say that's good. No, we're not talking about this particular whiskey. <laughs> oh, good. But you know, they're probably just pulling out the new jelly bean flavors and going with that. Like, oh, this one's now earwax. Right. Earwax is a jelly bean. That's flavor? an actual jelly bean flavor. I think some of it was a little bit influenced by Harry Potter. But yeah, again, if uh, now that you've had them, and uh, if you've got a like a teaspoon, uh, you can add a little bit of water, just a little. And uh, you only want to add a touch, but you can really kind of open up the flavor of the whiskey and just you start pulling out more and more of those notes. Well, the one thing that's interesting when you add it, um, add in water. I just added some to that uh, single barrel that we tried earlier was that um, I think this is what you were talking about earlier with some of the blenders and why they blend down. Uh, for tasting blend down a lot more than they would when they're when they're going to do the actual blend is because 
the alcohol heat goes away because that factors out kind of when you blend down, but then you pick up the other flavors kind of come to the forefront, yeah. which, which the alcohol may cover up when it's a lot stronger is my, my assumption. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the best, the best place to hear about these sorts of things is, is to listen to actual master distillers or master blenders talk. I mean, there's some real icons too in the industry. I mean, my, my sort of favorite distiller is a guy named Jim McEwen, like we've mentioned before yeah. from Brookladdy and Bamore. And there's a guy named Bill Lumson. Um, he's, he's actually got a PhD in like uh, chemistry, I think, but he's the guy that he does all the blending for Ardbeg and for Glenn Morangy. He's just fascinating to listen to talk to. And there's a guy who's the master blender for Dalmore and uh, a few other places. And his nickname is The Nose. And I can't remember his exact, his exact name, but... I think he was also on that documentary. Yeah, he was in there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people. But, you know, they, they just have a way. He's very, like, kind of flamboyant when he talks about it. There's a really great video you can find on YouTube of Jim McEwen. And he talks about, like, um, like old school ways of testing whiskey. And he, he says that, like... Um, you can tell a whiskey's age on your tongue by where you feel the burn. So like on the very tip of your tongue will be between five and 10 years and the middle of your tongue will be between like 10 and 15 or 10 and 20. And then if you feel the burn on the back of your tongue, that's like older than 20 years old. It's like fascinating. It's like <laughs> just sorts of all sorts of like, you know, old school whiskey guy uh yeah. do you want to go to the fifth one so the cheap yeah so those four? Fourth, yeah we're on four oh, we're on four uh, i've already moved we on have to got, we haven't even gotten <laughs> the chemistry uh so the next three are all isla whiskeys and they're all about uh brooklady uh whiskeys in particular so the top left is brooklady isla barley 2011 and the great thing i love about brooklady and also uh kilhoman which is another isla distillery they do this a lot they always bottle their whiskey at least their core whiskeys at 50 percent alcohol by volume which to me is a very like honest way of doing it if you think about just like percentage wise this is just sort of the middle cut of abv you know so if you want to add water to it or if you don't the great thing about this whiskey is this is all barley that was grown on isla and so they were really the first distillery on Isla to do this, to instill the skills of local farmers to grow barley for them to create these things. They've been doing it since 2004. And so this is a blend of about, I think about seven different farms on Isla, distilled in 2011, and it's probably bottled in 2018. So it's about six or seven years old. You know, there's a lot of talk about age statement and how you know, really what's driving the price of whiskey is scarcity. It's like anything else. So if you think about it, if a cask of whiskey has sat around in a distillery for 30 years, it's been there for so long, and, you know, it's probably survived the process of whiskey making long enough for maybe there's two of those casks left. And that's why most of the time a 30-year-old whiskey will cost $3,000 a bottle which I'm never going to pay $3,000. It, would you say at that point, it's more like buying a piece of art, almost basically being able to show your friends that you have this bottle and having a story behind it, besides just the actual liquid that's inside? Yeah, I think it can be. And, you know, there's the thing is, though, I mean, it all depends. You might get a bad cask. And so a 30-year-old whiskey might not have aged as well as you had hoped. So um you would think that by the time it gets to the market, though, that the people who are actually blending and distilling would know better. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's some of that for sure. There's definitely a market of whiskey collectors who buy these things and sit them on the shelf and never touch them. It's like buying putters, like you were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really, really yeah. great putters and never actually putting. Yeah, exactly. And there's a you know there's this guy named Ian uh, Ian MacArthur who's the uh, warehouse manager for Lagavulin, and his nickname is Pinky. If you've ever watched Parks and Rec, you know Ron Swanson goes to Lagavulin, and, and he talks with this little short kind of leprechaun sounding guy. He's just hilarious. His nickname is Pinky. And, uh, you know, he was giving an interview and they basically asked him, like, is there ever a bottle of whiskey you would buy and never drink? And he said, no, whiskey is meant for drinking. <laughs> you know, he's just very curt and like uh, uh, terse with his re uh, replies like that, just because it's so matter of fact. But, you know, I feel the same way. I mean, I've got bottles at home that I, I haven't opened then I'm, you know, in my mind, saving for a special occasion, but eventually they will be open. I, I actually, over quarantine, started saying, oh, all these all these bottles of different drinks that I have been saving for nothing, I'm going to start drinking them. And that's yeah, what I've been yeah. doing, yeah. yeah. But it's been wine or rum or whatever. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of that. I have a little bit of that problem with beer because, you know, when I first started getting into beer, I thought it'd be fun to age a bunch of beers. And now I have some, like, 10-year-old bottles. I'm like, well, what am I... What am I saving this for? Like, unless unless you have an occasion marked for that bottle, it's kind of hard to open because it's like, well, I've had it 10 years. Let's just keep rolling. But you should kind of almost instead of aging it, just like put a date on it when you're actually going to open it. Yeah. Probably. Well, so uh, going back to this whiskey, you know, um, one of the great things about Brook Laddie is the way that they've developed this new style of distilling it's just very grain forward. So they never really lose sight of being able to taste the barley profile. It's very fresh and vegetal. But this being an unpeated whiskey, you can still get all these maritime notes. So if you if you taste this compared to the first three, which are essentially like, you know, inland locations, you get a lot more salinity, a lot more maritime mm. things going on. Now that yeah. you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. One, one thing I actually get, I kept smelling this, and then all of a sudden, I got this smell of aged cheese, mm -hmm. like aged salty cheddar. It was, and yeah, it's out of nowhere, that's it, yeah. Yeah, and that's a great thing to pair with whiskey, too. Like, you know, an unpeated whiskey, if you pair it with, like, a smoked cheese, you can really create a great combination there. You know, I was, I was asking, um, you know, I go on Reddit, like a lot of people, and there's a Scotch subreddit. And uh, this might give away my Reddit handle. But anyway, uh, you know, I asked people, I was like, you know, I see people post all the time, like a, some big honking cigar that they're about to smoke with all this whiskey they're about to drink. And I'm just like, cigars and whiskey? Like, I just don't get it. You know, like, wouldn't that just get in the way of tasting the whiskey? Because, I mean, if you've ever smoked a big cigar, which I've smoked cigars, I'm not a cigar guy, but it just takes forever for one. And two, by the time you get done with it, you can't taste anything. And so I started asking these people, like, you know, and all the people were just like, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. I can taste some of the cigar differently and all this stuff. And one guy was like, I've always found that if you pair any Brook Laddie with watermelon, something really interesting happens. And so I was like, wow, that's interesting because my wife's favorite food probably in the world is watermelon. So we just had a bunch of watermelon around the house. And I went and tasted Brook Laddie with the watermelon and these maritime salty notes that you get. If you've ever just sprinkled a little bit of salt on a piece of watermelon and tried it, it just amplifies the, the sweetness of the melon itself. I'm going to throw out a reference here, but Jeffrey Zakarian, famous probably now to most people from being one of the judges on Chopped, you know, 
he's like this uh, white haired, really famous chef. You know, he said something on there once like that salt is like a flavor igniter. Right. And so yeah. when you when you taste brocolati with watermelon, all of a sudden the, the watermelon tasted more watermelony. And then you could really get a lot of the sort of salty notes more out of the whiskey itself, which is just really interesting to me. Um, so anyway, that is unpeated brocolati Isla Barley from 2011. If we go to the next glass, this is brocolati Port Charlotte, which is their peated line of whiskey but it's also 2011 Isla Barley. So there's a lot of the same farms making the same barley and you'll, you'll be able to detect the exact same kind of barley profile here, but this is peated to about 40 parts per million. I love that smell. Yeah. And so basically what they mean by peated whiskey is when they're drying out malted barley. So when barley malts, they spread it out on a floor and they wet it. And what they basically do is trick the barley into thinking, oh, it's time to grow. And that opens up the husk. So of the ger barley. germination. Yeah, they germinate the barley. What they do is then once that barley is turned and all opening up, they dry it out. So the Balvini that we tried earlier in the middle, the 12 year old single barrel and even the Balvini rum cask, that's peated to about three ppm, which means parts per million. So in phenols, that's like the molecule that creates this peat smoke smell. They do add just a tiny bit of peat to the fire and it's about three ppm. So, so they're adding that in, you said during germination. So the pores of the, the barley is actually open at that point. Yeah. So it's not like smoking the outside where some people, some brewers like or whatever roast, will like yeah. grab the malt and take it to a local barbecue guy and like smoke it. Right. But they're actually adding peat to the to the fire during the drying while the barley is open, which is great. That's really right, interesting. Right, yeah, so the, the smoke that goes up to, to dry out the barley imparts all this uh, peat flavor, which is really just dirt, essentially. It's like very organically dense, almost like compost, but if the ground was made out of it. So they dry that out, and really it, it emerged, I think, um, and I'm not an expert on Scottish history, I, I know a little bit, but like a lot of that was just out of necessity because people would, create fires by burning peat. And so once they started drying out the barley with these fires, that peat smoke smell imparts itself into the barley itself. And then so you get this lovely smokiness, but also this earthiness. And a lot of it's like kind of iodine, which comes mainly from the fact that they're an island, but you can still sort of detect that, that grain thread woven through it. That's very distinctive of Brooklady. And that's the thing about different distilleries. They have different shaped stills they have different distilling processes where they say well the middle cut is here or you know they might triple distill or they might quadruple distill which brooklady has only ever done once and i think they're the only people that have done it but the distinctive part of how each distillery tastes different is just every part of the process is different for each distillery i mean it's all basically the same but like just the nuances of how the, the spirit itself takes each turn differs. Well, I think you can easily say it's about the same as what breweries are doing too, because where every brewery is making beer and the product is beer that comes out at the end, everybody, I mean, you could give, uh, like right now, there's this whole thing going on with the Black is Beautiful beer, right? So every brewery is doing the same recipe, but they're all coming out different because everybody has a different kettle or everybody is, you know, maybe adding in the hops a little bit differently or, or however it is. 
So you could get every brewery around the country the same recipe. And the same thing happened with the campfire. Remember the Sierra Nevada campfire beer that came out last year? To yeah, yeah, the resilience. Yeah, resilience. Yeah, yeah. So every brew is given the exact same recipe. And it's kind of for them to figure out how to have it go through their unique process. And they all can And I've tried a bunch. And... Every one of them was different, and it's amazing because they're using the same ingredients in the same in the same recipe. You know, I've never thought about it before, but it's like that segment on Great British Bake Off where they just give them the recipe. <laughs> yeah, sure. they they it's it's bare bones it. recipe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everybody has a different background. Uh, you know, in the, in when you're talking beer industry and, and distilling, or or if you're talking about wine industry, or coffee, or whatever whatever beverage you're in, everybody could be given the exact same thing and based off of what your background or your equipment is, you're going to come out with a different thing. That that also sounds just like an incredible social experiment kind of with, you know, here's a set of problems and people are going to solve it differently, even though the result was supposed to be the same and it's not. It's kind of like the big recipe bang, like just a centralized piece of information just evolves naturally over time. Yeah, exactly. This, this whiskey though, just to as an this aside, is great. I would drink this. This every is my incredible. favorite whiskey that you can buy in this the store. Is, right so this now. is awesome. This is the Brooklyn in Port Charlotte. For yeah, I love our and, and yeah. going going on that. It's interesting that you say that. So I, I have a good story about Brickladdy. Uh, and the reason why I originally even thought of Brick Laddie going in this story is because at your house, I remember seeing it on the shelf and how you were talking so highly of it. So uh, when I took I took a trip to Scotland this past uh, October to do my dream trip, which is play St. Andrews in Carnoustie and basically live in St. Andrews for a week. And I went over there with my godbrother and the prize for uh, who's going to win the week long tournament over eight rounds was a bottle of scotch that we we're going to split. So uh, we went into a, uh, a shop uh, in St. Andrews and this, this lady, this girl, she was super nice. And she actually let's try like 20 to 25 whiskeys. Wow, yeah. And then, and. and the, this speaks even high, more highly of her because we said, we're going to try much now and we'll come back in a few days and buy the bottle. And she's like, sounds great. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. So we drank, I don't know, 25 different ones. And the one that was by far uh, better than any of the others that I thought was the Brick Lady. And I don't remember which one. It was the yellow, yellow case. Um, I believe you can get it here. I remember seeing a yellow one. Oh yeah, it was just an Isla Barley probably. And yeah. I, I thought it was awesome. And yeah. It was kind of like this. It was peaty, but not like you're drinking an ashtray kind it of thing. It was probably more akin to, to this one, really. Um, the one before. Yeah. I don't remember. It definitely had a little bit of a peat to it. It may have, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think some of that gets in regardless, but in terms of it being technically unpeated or not. Um, you know, I mean, the the Balvenie you would call unpeated, even though there's a little bit of it. It's just not very peat forward. Um, but yeah, I just, I just think, you know, for the money and now with this tariff going on, which we won't get into, but, um, you know, this, I think just for the quality of what you're getting, it's mm. just so fresh tasting and like it's, it's unchill filtered. There's and just I, no and you're saying for the money, what I remember is we didn't spend a ton on that bottle either, even though I thought oh, it was yeah. the best thing yeah. that we had. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some bargains to be had out there. I mean, you know, I really love Lagavulin, and that's one of my favorite distilleries too. The, those two are probably my favorite. You know, Lagavulin in sixteen itself is a, it's an older product, sure, but I mean, it's it's lower ABV. So some people get into that sort of mindset, like lower ABV shouldn't cost more. But 
At the same time, it's 16 years old. It's aged for a long time. It's consistent. You know, I think that's what you're really paying for when you get something like that. You know what you're going to get. You know, and the products evolved over time. Some people think that it used to be better, but who? Yeah, everyone says that about everything, right? A batch one is always the best. Oh, and yeah, I'm opening sure. a brewery. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. see this when, you know. I'm going to open up every reason to say the beer is awesome. And then three months later, I, I know as the brewer that everything's going to improve probably by month three or four. But everybody's like, batch one, man. That was the best <laughs> one. Oh, I'm definitely going to get just a, because you had, a bottle of because, that and put it on a shelf yeah, somewhere. Because you had batch one, you're always yeah. going to have these fond oh, memories yeah. of batch one. Yeah. Uh, there was a there was a guy in Austin uh, who actually had a shirt that said batch one was better. Nice. <laughs> That's hilarious. So if we want to keep keep this rolling, uh, Scott, uh, uh, Craig, you had a, a story you were saving. That, that was the story. That was the Brooke Lighty. Yeah, right. sorry. I, I saved the story for the Brooke Lighty. You know, I will say uh, I haven't played golf in St. Andrews. I've spent a day in St. Andrews and I walked part of the golf course because it was a Sunday. Oh, God. That's that's the coolest thing yeah. to do is walk the course on and Sunday. And so I, I was there and you realize that it's right on the coast. The beach is one of the biggest beaches I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, West Sands. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm walking around this <laughs> golf course and it was the windiest place I've ever been oh, in my, my life. Gosh. And I'm like, how does anyone ever play? <laughs> Golf yeah, it's about it. Well, we pretty much had 25, 30 mile per hour sustained winds the whole time. But that that's that's the joy of playing there is because there's not like trees that hit around. If yeah. you didn't have wind, it wouldn't be very interesting, to be honest. That's the true, wind yeah. is what actually when your ball uh, moves 20 yards left, it's mm -hmm. it's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yeah. Chaos is always a fun yeah. thing. It's kind of like playing fantasy football and all of a sudden your kicker scores like 40 points. <laughs> um, so another uh, layer to this tasting is um, peating levels. So what was I, when I was talking about phenols and parts per million earlier, the Brooklady Port Charlotte Isla Barley is peated to around 40 ppm. So you just, you just had a taste of that. You can kind of get used to it. Well, this next um, dram is Brooklady Octomore 7.1. I'm seeing a trend here that you like Brooklady. Yeah, well, I, you know, I mentioned we that. We did, yeah, didn't compare. Uh, but they're all Islas, and um, Brooklady Octomore is billed as the most heavily peated whiskey in the world, and I'm pretty sure that's correct. But they typically peat them to around 167 ppm, and this was uh, just another one that just it worked out that way. It just seemed like it made more sense. This is peated to 208 parts per million, so this is quite more heavily peated than the one we just tried. Oof. And that's why you saved it for the end. It really, um, really touches the nose. But the thing is, by the by the end of it, you don't, you sort of just start not tasting the peat or really anything, but. Um, <laughs> this is, uh, this is quite a bit stronger too. Yeah, this is bottled at cash strength. I can tell from the heat. There's definitely some extra Yeah, the finish there. just goes on and on and on forever. Um, you know, one of my favorite ways of describing heavily peated whiskey is to call it, say that it tastes like a tire fire. You know, there's a local distillery here, um, uh, American Spirit Works, and they created a, a peated whiskey and they called it tire fire. And that instantly made me like it more. You know, and that's that's the thing with whiskey. It's like, I think you would have to be the bravest soul in the world to decide to start a distillery of all things, because 
in order to turn out, I mean, a whiskey distiller, in order to turn out a really good product, you need age. You need to lay down, you need to lay down these casks and let them sit there at least three years before you really get something great out of them. Well, that is why a lot of, from a business standpoint, that's why a lot of distilleries will do one of two things. They either immediately start offering a vodka or gin or something else that doesn't have to be aged or what I'm seeing more of now is distilleries will open up and they will start aging, yeah. but then they'll also bring down stuff from Kentucky and, you know, in totes. They're not even bringing it down in barrels. They're bringing it down in plastic totes at that point. And they just blend it until they have something that they like and bottle up and say it's theirs, well, which is a little faux strange for me being a, a I guess somebody who wants to know that the the product was made at the facility, you know, the, the bringing it down toast and then just blending up and putting it in a bottle is it's a little bit off for me, but it's a way to keep your doors open while your stuff is aging. Sure. So yeah. From a business standpoint, it makes sense. Well, and some of my favorite whiskeys are apparently made. There's a place in Indiana called MGP, and they're one of the biggest uh, distilleries in the world just because there are expressions of like whistle pig rye. There are Angel's Envy is an MGP product. You know, we're not really talking about bourbon, but like just my some of my favorite American whiskeys are products of this Indiana distillery. There's something to be said about a master blender being able to go and select and curate a certain product and put out something that's good. That's another great way to, to invest in this kind of business, I think, is to just like you're saying, keep the doors open, create a product in order to get your legs underneath you and then go from there. Everybody brings a bottle. I'm not a whiskey expert, but what I like about anything, whether it's beer, whiskey, wine, the bottles that I like the most, they're usually the ones that have somewhat of a story behind them. So I brought this because um, I ran out of scotch. I was all out of scotch. <laughs> and my wife, very sweet, um, she, uh, it was our 10th anniversary and she already got me something, but she thought she needed to give me a little something more. So she went to the shop and she got me a bottle of Lagavulin. I think it's awesome. Again, I don't know a ton about scotch. I can tell you what I'm tasting is definitely some, definitely some peat which I learned today that they're adding this peat flavor during the germination process is what it sounds like. First of all, the label's good. We I agreed on the that. Label. The label's I good. love the Lagavulin label. And I'm sure it. that sold it to my wife. Well, I love the fact, again, they don't print it in stark black lettering. It's like gray on cream. It just looks old to begin with. In the Scotch enthusiast community, there's a kind of a big bashing of Lagavulin sometimes. And I think oh. it's... You know, I think it just has to do with a lot of factors. People think Diageo is kind of shit. Like, yeah. they don't like Diageo. Um, it's a big conglomerate, so I'm sure that's kind of the... Yeah, you know, there's this... So, Lagavulin used to be owned by White Horse Distillers back in the day until about 1996, I think, is when they were bought by Diageo. And so, there's just all this talk about how before that it was better, and who knows? I've never had any old Lagavulin that. Seen it in auctions plenty of times. A lot of people think it's bottled at too low an AVB for the price. It's, you know, usually costs about a hundred bucks a bottle. Um, 
And the other knock on it is, you know, they, they distill Lagavulin in 16. So the core range products are distilled on Isla, but then shipped to Glasgow to, to mature. And some people think that that takes away from the provenance, you know, that kind of thing. It's all not all done right there on site. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and any kind of limited edition or, you know, special bottling of Lagavulin is stuff that's matured at the distillery itself. But, I, you know, Lagavulin 16 is consistent. It's delicious. Nothing, nothing really tastes like Lagavulin. And honestly, this is another good story. Um, I have gone to restaurants at least three times and ordered Lagavulin and have been given a glass of Laphroaig. And I called them out. I said, this is not Lagavulin. I know what Lagavulin tastes like. Give it a sniff. Lafroy is much heavier smoke. Well, I mean, it's, it's it's probably about the same, but there's there's a much. It, I think it's the way that they distill it. There's a much more heavily pronounced iodine factor. Like if you imagine like going into the, you just walk out into a bog of ocean water, and there's a handful of seaweed, and you just grab it and take a big bite out of it. That's what Lafroy tastes like. It's it's kind of very much more medicinal, much more. It's like iodine and salt. That's what Lafroy tastes like. Um, but back to your earlier question, Lagavulin, the best description of Lagavulin I've ever heard. Someone said, and I think it was Charles McLean, and he is probably the my favorite whiskey writer who talks about scotch. He said it's all the flavors of a summer barbecue in one sip. Which, if you think about it, is super accurate. It's it's sweet, it's smoky, it's savory. It's all of those things combined, and I think that's that's the appeal of Lagavulin. Like you're going to pay a little bit more of a premium for it, but you know what you're going to get. It's kind of like buying Stone Ruination. It's like you know you're going to suck on an aspirin in a glass of lemon juice. That's how I describe Stone Ruination. But that's my favorite beer of all time, by the way. So I'm not knocking it. So one uh, one question about drinking whiskey, just in general, um, how do you prefer to? What's what's the usual way that everybody at the table were to drink? Like as far as straight neat or with with some water? Or I usually just drink neat. I mean, I'll put like maybe half a half a little teaspoon of water in every once in a while. But I, I like to pour a glass of whiskey in the middle of doing something and just. I honestly, so I live in this old 1920 bungalow house. Yeah, it's like a bungalow house in Grant Park in Atlanta. You know, over time, the the way the house is used has evolved. And so now our living room is really what would be considered the dining room back in the day. And because of that, it has this plate rail that goes all the way around the room. It's like a ledge with a couple grooves in it. And back in the early 1900s, that's where they would keep the china. They would just put the plates along the wall and have them leaned up in these little grooves to keep the plates from falling off. So it's kind of this ledge where you can go sit your keys, you can sit your wallet, you can sit like a pair of sunglasses. So a lot of the times I'll pour a, a dram of whiskey, I love smelling it, and I'll sit it up on this ledge and just kind of forget about it. And I'll just, you know, be doing a chore, like unloading the dishwasher or watching a baseball game or whatever it is. And I'll just leave it there. And then even like once it gets done 
once I'm done drinking the glass of whiskey, one of the best things in the world is you haven't washed the glass, you've left it on this plate rail, and then the next day you go and just sniff the glass mm. and you'll get all the different flavors mm. from this one sip because all the alcohol alcohols evaporated. And all the phenols and all the different cask nuances and expressions of the flavor are just still lingering there in the glass. And that's just great. And, uh, you know, I think whiskey is a contemplative drink. In Scotland, there's these things called bothies, which are basically like it's basically a free shack that you can camp in that are there. People just I mean, I love Scotland. It's like there's just like a little house where if you're just camping and like hanging out. It's just left there for you to like find shelter. And so a lot of people, you know, kind of describe whiskey as like alone in the bothy, you know, like by yourself with your thoughts. In your solitude reciting yeah, Robert exactly. Burns. Yeah. Robert Burns. <laughs> Billy, you drink it neat? How do you usually drink whiskey? I actually, uh, so, so Dave and I do drink uh, together quite a bit, um, sharing whiskey on my back porch, his front porch. I tend to go with one little rock in my uh, alcohol or this is one of the, fro the frozen rocks that don't melt. One of those frozen rocks that, that do melt into do uh, melt. Okay. to liquor tank uh, substances of liquid. No, I I, I I tend to put an ice in my whiskey. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm the same way. I do I do whiskey. I do sorry. I do um, one cube uh, plus maybe a splash of water. Yeah. Because I, I kind of like how the, the cube kind of changes the whiskey as I'm drinking it, I guess. I also, it's a weird kind of flow chart for me of like, you get the stronger whiskey up front and as you right. have drinking more, it's watered down a little bit more so that you, it actually kind of eases the finish yep. for you. So yeah, that's the way I see it. But um, I have no problem drinking something neat if I need to. If you need, yeah. <laughs> if somebody's watching with an eye and then you have to. We have no ice yes. here. We're okay. Okay. I'm turning it on its head again. You're, you're a beer guy or a whiskey guy? Billy. It's not again because we haven't gotten to. We're actually in the middle of the podcast okay. right here. Well, I know. But I'm <laughs> this is, this is bonus. Are you, are you a beer guy or a whiskey guy? Well, I would say always a beer guy. Okay. Are you a beer guy or a whiskey guy, Greg? You're I'm more. I'm more. Of a, yeah, definitely more of a beer okay. guy. Obviously. What beers for both of you made you beer people? Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Okay. Um, Terrapins Rye. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Because I would say the whiskey that made me a Scotch person was actually a gift from uh, a friend of ours, Brian, uh, for our wedding. You know, we had a stock the bar party and I, I'd never really been into Scotch. And he gave me a bottle of Macallan 15 year old Fine Oak. And so that's like three different kinds of whiskey. He gave it to me, sat on this bar cart we had for a while. And finally I was like, yeah, I'm going to try some of that. And I started drinking it and I got like halfway through the bottle and I was like, this is really good. Yeah. And you know, I would pour it over ice and stuff. And then I was like, well, let me just go see what this costs. And I was like, oh, this is really good. <laughs> <laughs> but then ever since, you know, that's the, that's the well, whiskey that well, got me into whiskey. Since then you've probably paid a significantly more for other whiskeys. On occasion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, so I, I guess a little of that goes back to kind of evolution of how everybody drinks, right? Everybody kind of drinks the cheap beer or whatever at first yeah. and I think scotch is a little bit of intimidating because definitely price point I would think that would that would steer somebody away from it that's younger but um, yeah I think I think a lot of people when they first think about scotch are like oh I won't like that it's too 
I don't know. It's something. It's definitely an intimidating drink to get into. I think there's a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, acquired taste that goes into it too. Like I will admit the very first time I'd ever had the Craig brought Lagavulin 16, I didn't like it. Like I thought it was just aggressive. You know, I'm not really into olives. I don't like olives. That much. You know, I love, I love food. Except I can't do olives. The thing is when I first tasted Lagavulin 16, I was like, Oh, this is like drinking olives. You know, it was just like too salty, too aggressive. I could drink Lagavulin in my sleep now. I'll be honest. Yeah. But I think <laughs> please don't. probably a, uh, probably a similar thing for, for beer people is probably like, I don't want to say like the all sours, like kettle sours, a little bit different. That's a little more approachable, like barrel aged, real funky sour stuff. Because one, the price point's usually pretty high because it's a product that's been aging a long time, and not a lot of people, not a lot of brewers have the experience to make a really good one. Uh, and also acquiring taste, talking about acquired taste, you know, a lot of this stuff tastes like funky pickle juice. Like huh. it's, um, it, that, I think that carries a similar weight to it as far as the beer side goes. Like a Cantillon that's uh, been aging in barrels for a few years. Oh, wow. So is there a, is there a, uh, a dichotomy between like savory sour beer and like fruity sour beer? Yeah, there's a, there's a fruited sours and I, I would say the fruited sour stuff comes in uh, like you're talking about Russian River they make a really awesome uh, creek yeah. um, and the fruit definitely balances out a lot of the sourness yeah. and it's, it's done in a way that's perfect balance um, it, but again if the brewer is not good with it and they could do something that's overly sweet and just doesn't uh, the marriage isn't right between the flavors um, but then there's also unfruited stuff that man if you do it badly and if you're not adding in a fruit I mean you can have something that's almost undrinkable compared to uh, a Cantillon that, I mean these guys have been doing it for generations and it's actually a museum in Brussels now. It's not just a brewery, it's actually a working museum at the same time. And these guys are have a product that they aren't adding any fruit to it and can be that smooth at the same time is pretty amazing. Wow. But carries a pretty high price point and it's a very acquired taste. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know there was like a savory side of sour beer. Sure, yeah. I don't know about say. I guess just straight sour. I don't know about okay. savory so much, but like they're adding a balancing component with fruit at all. So sort of more of like. I have a ten-year-old one in my in my. This is one of the beers I'm I'm, I'm afraid to open because it's been huh. sitting for so long. I have a ten-year-old one uh, back in the house. Huh. Yeah, I guess it's more of like a lemon drop than a. Yeah, the lemons you are know, definitely a, kind of it, it's a, yeah, definitely a lemony sourness with some added almost funky cheese funk to it. Huh. Yeah, I tried to save a couple of those like stone verticals, but then eventually I was just like, I need some beer to drink. <laughs> That's in the fridge. I'll just drink it. Like, I didn't <laughs> think it very long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the best way to end. We were talking about this before. Was that? Uh, or I assume it's before. <laughs> that um, uh, it, the best way to age stuff is usually put on there when you're going to drink it so that way you won't drink it until then but you have to drink it right then you can't right. w- keep waiting Yeah. Huh. otherwise it'll wait forever and then maybe you won't even open it I, yeah. I, told, I did tell my wife this is uh, um, for my funeral 
if I have beer that's in the cellar, it's coming out at the funeral. Serve it up at, at the party at the end. Yeah, because there's no reason to keep that's aging good. at that point. Yeah, I mean your your wishes and intentions are done. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. right. Yeah. We Ooh, haven't, what did you bring? We haven't discussed uh, Ardbeg yet, which I love. I think it's great. Um, shall we have a sample? Ardbeg was, if I'm not mistaken, you can see the bottle for a second. Um, yeah, so it was founded a year before Lagavulin. Um, it's one of the three distilleries on the three distilleries path of Isla. So the great thing about Ardbeg, if you ever go to Island, is it's the only distillery, well, it's, it's the first distillery that uh, Kilhoman has one now, but it has a cafe in it. Uh, when you, the main isle, the main port on Isla is Port Ellen. And so that's kind of a main thoroughfare for people. So you can walk from Port Ellen up this paved road that follows the, the like main driving road. And it's called the Three Distilleries Path. And so you basically walk and about two miles up this road, you come to Lafroig, and then eventually you come to Lagavulin. And then if you keep going a little bit, you get to Ardbeg and Ardbeg has a really amazing food cafe in it. And so a lot of people do that. That's kind of like their progression and they go eat lunch. <laughs> they've they've had they've had three distilleries by dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it's delicious, and the food's here. And one of the best things you can do is actually you can get what they call a table tasting. So it'll be like this, where they bring you a tray, and they have these little tiny Glencairn glasses that are basically a third of this size that hold like twenty five milliliters. And they'll bring you six different kinds of art bag, and it's like fifteen pounds. And so, for what you're that's getting, that's a damn good deal. Yeah, I you, take you take that deal. I take, I take that deal. So, for what you're getting, it's delicious, and you you just discover the whiskey that way while also having like a Scottish pie instead of a shepherd's pie, which is basically uh, you know soup with bread on top of it instead of like a pie baked into it. Aside from that. Uh, Mickey Heads was the um, production manager of Ardbeg, and I think he's actually retiring. But like I said before or earlier, Dr. Bill Lumsden is the master blender um, for Ardbeg and for Glenmorangie, and he basically like heads up all of their uh, expressions now. There's a guy named Jim Murray who puts out the Whiskey Bible every year. And at one point, and I'm sure they've made note of this on their packaging, he said there is no finer whiskey distillery in the world than Ardbeg at once. And honestly, I would say for the money at present day when this podcast is being recorded, uh, if you want to spend $50 on a bottle of whiskey, Ardbeg 10 is probably the best bet you can make uh, in terms of single malt scotch whiskey because it's, it's delicious. It's heavily peated. Um, I think Ardbeg 10 is mainly, it's pretty much all matured in ex bourbon barrels. And you know, there is a, there is a faction of scotch whiskey enthusiasts who love the word tar, anything that has the word tar in it, they are all about. And that basically just means it's super smoky. I feel like I need to get in a car at in Glasgow, drive to the West Coast, get on a ferry, first go to the Isle of Hattie, Aran? Aaron. Aaron. Go play a course called Shishkine, which is the best 12-hole course in the world, and some just say it's like the, one of the best courses in Scotland, regardless if it's 12 holes or not. Go over to Campbelltown. 
play Macrahanish. It's supposed to be the best course, course in the world. You just can't play the British Open there because it's way the hell out there. And then keep going and get a 15-pound flight of whiskey. That sounds like a, a hell of a plan. You know, my wife and I are supposed to go to Isla again in November. Um, and of course, this is a trip that's been postponed a couple times. Yeah. And I really want to go spend one entire day on Campbellton. And I'll be damned if that sounds like a plan. There's some incredible golf there. Macrihanish and Macrihanish Dunes are supposed to be awesome. Well, you know, on Isla, they just opened the Macri uh, links. And so mm-hmm. oh, I heard that well, the Macri was there, yeah. an old hotel that was like dormant for a long time. Um, and someone bought it and re- revamped it and it's on Isla in the middle of the island and uh, you know it's supposed to be great so I'd love to check that out I just uh, you know I guess when you go and play golf in Scotland you just rent clubs oh hell no take my clubs I can't uh, rent clubs okay. that, that's like it's like hey when you go to a gig do you just like borrow a guitar <laughs> no no so, so I, so how many, how many times have you been over to Scotland? Three, three times. And yeah. You never brought your clubs. I, just, you know, I, I love playing golf, but it like, I, you know, it just seems like a big hassle. Wow, yeah, that's incredible. Because you're willing to bring whiskey back, but not bring your clubs. Well, I can get clubs. I can buy golf clubs priorities. in the U.S. I can't buy certain whiskeys. I guess US. that's true. But you also that's can't it. play certain courses. That's very US. true. Yeah, I guess maybe I, a okay. certain style of golf is just not just played. Mine. Well, yeah. I'm just thinking like you know, ten cup style. If I was going to play a golf course with three of my own clubs, what would they be? Three clubs. So you get three clubs. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the putter just it's got to stay at home because you can't yeah. you can't bring it. You can blade a wedge. So I'm, yeah. t- I'm using a 56 degree wedge. Probably Honestly, a, that's probably my favorite golf club. Yeah, 56 because yeah. you can blade it too. You can putt with the 56 degree. So I'm doing a 56 degree, even though I like my 60 degree more. I'm doing a six iron and a three wood. See, I was gonna say three wood. You gotta love it, yeah, because you can't do the driver because you can't hand it off the ground. That's the problem. You know, and I and you can you can choke up the three wood a little bit. I, I I will admit, like I want someone to just give me a driver lesson because I got the guy for you. I got a well, guy there are for more you. Times than not, when I like the, at least the first two holes of golf course, I'll be like, I'm just gonna hit a four iron off the tee because I know I can hit it straight in like 200 yards. Yeah, you know, but you can't hit it two eighty. You can't do eighty now. Yeah. But I can hit I can hit a good driver like ninety yards that way. Yeah, super easily, all the time. Mm-hmm. Is it just a major slice? Is that what you major slice? <laughs> yeah. I see. There's so much difference between hitting an iron and a driver. I just have to it is that a driver. Yeah. yeah. Best thing I did be so. This is gonna be a three quarter. So, <laughs> so, no, so, so quarantine <laughs> shut down my golf for a little while. Up front, the course is open back up. But um, I uh, I put a, a a net in my garage. Being able to just hit 15 balls in the middle of the day, whenever, that, that's a game changer. I, I would like to point out that Craig's garage is a <laughs> golf practice zone that has a, a brewery. Yeah. yeah, with like a, with a brewery. brewery attached to it. Yeah, yeah. We have three beers on tap. I'm, I'm, I have fermenters in there, um, and it's five feet away from where I hit golf balls. And, and Amy. You know, tries to store things in the garage, and you yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, I, I, I put it back in the house. <laughs> so basically, you go hang out at Craig's house. It's a, it's a good house. Craig's house, sorry. Yeah. Excuse me, Craig's house. He's, yeah. he's got he's, a, he's got the beer and he's got golf. And uh, what he needs, what you need is you need to have, um, like, sound system and movie projection and all that. I have the Sonos's out there. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the upgrade would be to actually have a projector onto a screen where I could do like golf could, simulators. Yeah, yeah, simulate the course. Course. That would be sweet. Simulator. But that's, you know, I spent, between the net and I, I got a little uh, uh, golf thing that shows me how fast I'm swinging. And I, you know, I spent like 200 bucks on this set. Golf simulator, we're spending like at least three, four grand. It, yeah. It's a minimum. I mean, you could spend, you could spend yeah. you know, 100 grand. But geez, you could. I thought you, you could spend like sixteen hundred. Uh, you can get just the component that measures you. So, but then you gotta get a projector too, and you gotta oh, get the God. screen okay. for the projector and all that. So, minimum two, three thousand bucks. Yeah. Um, you know, that's it's. Uh, I'm not exactly getting paid right now because we haven't opened up the brewery. <laughs> right. Yeah. Barely. We're small. You know, it would be amazing though, so if you had a golf simulator at the brewery. Craig, and it was like, been discussed. And it was like, you know, you pay for a VIP membership, and all of a sudden, like, sure. the curtain opens up, and it's like, stop giving other breweries ideas, Dave. Or you're paying $50 an hour to, to play on the golf simulator while you're drinking beer. I, I think that's a great idea. This can absolutely be arranged. This can definitely be arranged. Yeah. So, for those who want to come visit the brewery when we open up, <laughs> well, I love Ardbeg 10. I love Ardbeg. I mean, there are times when I, when I start thinking, like, is Ardbeg my favorite distillery? I know it's like the most consistent, like, non-age statement bottle you can buy. So they make a bottle called Oogadal, which is all sherry cask. They make a bottle called Cory Vrecken, which there's a whirlpool. It's the second most dangerous whirlpool in the world. The, the Strait of Isla is the body of water that goes between Isla and Jura. And at the top, oh, you go to the top and there's a whirlpool up there, a naturally occurring whirlpool because of like this plateau underneath mm-hmm. the ocean. And it's called the Cory Vrecken. And it is the second most dangerous uh, maelstrom in the world. So the two other name for whirlpool. The two islands are really close and the water's flowing between yeah. them. So that's why it's probably pretty dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably. So I lived in New Zealand in the North and South Island. There's a ferry cross and it's also like wow. similar because it's, they're so close together. Wow. that It's a hard crossing right there. But yeah, I saw on the, on the map how close they were, and it's amazing how close they are, but you still have to take a ferry across. You said yeah. it's still not a bridge. Well, so when you're on Isla, um, there are now three distilleries on that coast of Isla. There's Kalila, then there's uh, Ardnaho, which is only a couple years old. They just started uh, distilling a couple years ago, but they're just opened like last year, I think. And then there's Bunahabin or Buna Harvin, I think is how you're supposed to say it. Uh, but when you're standing there, and really from anywhere on Isla, if you look in the right direction, there are these mounds on Jura, which they call the Paps of Jura, which if you think of a, let's not really the same thing, but basically the Paps of Jura mean the tits of Jura. And so there are these like hills that look like breasts <laughs> coming off of the island. I do think we have consumed more alcohol in this episode than others. 
Very yeah, true. Like, uh, oh, pound for well, pound. Usually, usually we're not drinking distilled beverage. This is this is well, uh, more concentrated. I'm surprised, I'm surprised yeah. you didn't really go into that too, because you know, to make whiskey, you have to first make beer. Yeah, to, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, whiskey and uh, with whiskey, I don't know. Uh, as far as bourbon goes, they call it the wash. So I don't know if they call yeah, it the same thing. Scotch whiskey, they call it wort. Really? So yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's wort. So for us, wort, it's wort before we ferment it. So and then after it, after you ferment bourbon, it's it's the wash. It's probably the same. I don't know. They don't, they don't really go into that much of a. Well, okay. So I'm I'm assuming on the front end it's pretty similar, and I've I've actually so there's a distillery up in in Denver called uh, Strandhands, and Strandhands actually does a process that's much more similar to Scotch, where they don't use corn. Um, they uh, they make beer just like just like you you would in a brewery. You start with start with the malted barley. It goes through a laddering process. You're, you're straining out all the husk, and then you come with a, a clean sugar substance called called wort. Then you're boiling it so that way you're sterilizing it off before you ferment it. So and then it goes through a fermentation process. For them, they said it takes about five days. Um, a distiller's yeast is much faster. Um, it could it could, it could even take about three days, depending on what yeast strain you use and what temperature you ferment at. But they don't care quite as much about the ester profile because later on, when you put it through the still, a lot of those volatiles are going to evaporate during the distillation process. So then it goes into a, uh, a still where they bring it up to a temperature that is not quite boiling because at boiling, you actually boil off all the alcohol. But alcohol vaporizes at a lower temperature than boiling, so it goes up the stack, then they collect it when it goosenecks down, and then that's where it goes into the barrel for aging. Um, compared to a corn mash, which is what you do with bourbon, <coughs> what I've seen is they actually take the um, more of a raw uh, product that they don't strain out, and all the corn husk is actually in the fermentation. Whereas with um, beer, you're straining it off. And I, I believe with scotch, you're straining off all the husk material, but I'm not sure if you have you looked down in the fermenters, have they said if if they're straining that off or if they're leaving the husk behind? Well, they, what they do with scotch and barley is they grind it up into such a fine powder. It's like talc. Hmm. I mean, it's like, it is like the finest powder you've ever seen in your life. So using ha- they're probably using a hammer mill. So that is what uh, a grist mill. Basically. Yeah, but yeah, a hammer mill would, would bring more down to chalk yeah, material. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the thing, you know, a lot of times that's the oldest part of the entire distillery because hmm. you know there's these like these mills. Honestly, my favorite my favorite whiskey I've ever had in my life. Um, I have I keep trying to find bottles of, and when I mentioned uh, about when you go to a distillery and you can buy a Valinch bottle or a Valinch bottle. Um, uh, I bought one of these bottles at Brooklady and it's a Port Charlotte single cask. Uh, when I bought it, it was about 12 years old, but it's like a Vin du Naturel cask, like a sweet French wine. And so they took the Port Charlotte and they matured it in there for like 11 years. And then that was a single cask you could buy. And the name of it was Tag Amulin, which in uh, Gaelic it means the mill house. And so a lot of the times these oldest parts of the distillery themselves are the machine that do that milling, you know, that grind it into basically nothing. I mean, it is like super fine, like 
Because with beer, we actually leave behind a lot of the husk because yeah. in the latter process, we need that husk to act as a natural filter bed. So mm-hmm. we have to leave that husk. We can't grind it down into yeah. a, a fine... Well, I know in a lot of uh, non-chill filtered whatever processed whiskeys, they're still like sent through like a five like mill filter like just a big uh, micron yeah five micron filter yeah. just to get out sediment yeah. and stuff like that yeah we, we and we'll use that in beer too uh, my, uh, you know it, you can get whatever micron you want actually you can go down to uh, 0.5 micron which would be sterile filtration um we just take out all the bacteria obviously you don't have to take out all the bacteria with scotch because yeah. it's gonna kill it off like it's gonna kill it off yeah. by the alcohol yeah 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 any other final thoughts on uh scotch or scotland you know i would say the one thing and i'm sure it's for beer too um there's a scotch out there that anyone will like um people might not really gravitate toward towards peated whiskey like ardbeg or lagavulin or god forbid lafroig you know there's something in it for everyone yeah, I'd say that's a very, very similar to beer. I, I, I'm amazed at how many people tell me, you know, they find out I'm a brewery, they're from a friend or family or whatever, and they say, oh, I'm just not really a beer person. Then I'm like, well, what do you, what else do you drink? Do you drink, uh, you, you know, drink wine? And what kind of wine do you like? Is it a Chardonnay or whatever it is? And then I'll, I'll put something in front and they go, wow, I really like that. And I go, that is beer. And they're like, what? And it, it, it's almost a mind-blowing experience for them because for beer, it's a one-dimensional thing. It's light lager. Yeah. And when you put something in front of them that is, that is not necessarily mind-blowing, but different enough to where it um, takes away any preconce- preconceived notions, it's amazing that how, how much their mindset can change. And then I see them. You know, that may be somebody I don't see very often. I see them a year later, and they're telling me all this other stuff that they tried since we talked. And on that bombshell, uh, Dave, thanks for joining us again. No problem. Craig, thank you. Uh, We're going to close it out there. Thanks, guys. There you have it. Beer Flight Podcast is a production of Round Trip Brewing Company. Voiceover help from Chris Mykoski. Design help from Scott Miller. There are many truisms in the world, and just as the sun rises every day, the certainty of death and taxes, there is water at the bottom of the ocean, and more obviously, whiskey is meant for drinking. We'll see you next time on the Beer Flight Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for flying with us today. We know you have many options in air travel, and we were probably the cheapest.